HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit Michter's.com to find out how their taste-is-everything-cost-be-damned attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to The Speakeasy. I'm your host, Damon Bolte. And in the studio, well, not actually in our studio, but on the show today, we have uh, someone who I actually missed when he was on his book tour for this awesome book, uh, Adam Rogers of Proof, The Science of Booze. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Or, as you say, not not there, but I'm (laughs) glad to be where I am talking to you well you know how this works yeah <laughs> yeah i was actually out in san francisco while you were out here we totally swapped places when you're on your book tour so you know couldn't have been better timing i guess <laughs> inconvenient that's okay though at least we're doing it now um yeah, yeah so well i guess you you guys are pretty busy i i hear that today you dropped the uh, the edward snowden story i should i guess i should say that you are the uh you're the articles editor at wired so that's right. You're you're you guys are. I guess the office is a buzz right now between construction and and this crazy story that just came out, huh? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. A, it's been a, a pretty nutty um, few months on this story. Almost uh, almost a year, and I, I wasn't I wasn't on point on it. They they didn't. It was so it was so um, trade crafty and spy like. They didn't read me in until about a month ago because I top edited a few of the pages that needed to mention that we had this story, <laughs> and they were like. You know, um, we're going to tell you we've had this thing going on because otherwise you'll be seeing pages that aren't real pages. I mean, they they had they had fake cover ideas and fake tables of contents rolling around the office. And Whoa, didn't, cool! <laughs> didn't the editor in chief was telling us that he was in one country when in fact he was in another? It was uh, it was it was pretty wild. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I, but yeah. the, so the, the the story. I mean, I, I guess I should say it's an, an interview with um, with Edward Snowden in Russia and, and some great pictures of him, and it's, it's gotten a, a very nice response. It's terrific work. Everybody did. 
amazing, very high-level magazine making going on there. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I was just, like I said, I was out there, and, I, you know, the, the new office is really, you know, buzzing right now, and it's just a cool publication. I mean, speaking of cool publications, your book just came out a couple of months ago uh, through Hot and Mifflin Court out, or Harcourt. <laughs> I always, that's a tongue twister for me. Um, yeah. They're doing a lot of cool stuff. They, uh, my, but, you know, Brad Thomas Parsons, the author of uh, The Bitters book? He actually yes, works. yeah, he he works there. He's yeah. at Howden Mifflin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's cool. Um, so yeah, let's get well. We there's a lot to talk about regarding your book. Um, it's a really cool book. I love the way it's broken down into categories, starting with yeast and sugar and fermentation, taste and smell, aging. Um, there's some really really amazing stuff in here. What inspired you to uh, write such a? Uh, well, I mean, I guess you work for a tech magazine, so that would inspire some of the uh, the tech side of it, huh? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I am, I, I'm, I'm a, a science writer by training, and I do tend to understand or try to understand the world through that, uh, through that lens. Uh, the, the shorter version of that is I wrote a, a feature story for Wired a, a few years ago now, um, a kind of mystery story about a mysterious fungus that lives on the fumes of aging whiskey. Mm-hmm. And I got uh, it, the story was a lot of fun to report, and it got a very nice response. But while I was doing it, I did, as one often does for, for big magazine features, a lot of side reporting. I just got interested in the subject, and so was reading a lot of other stuff. As I kept telling my, my friends, my, my poor friends had to hear more and more about this um, as I was doing the work. And finally, one of them, a very good science writer, said, you know, you have a book in this. And I said, really? What? In what? Um, <laughs> and he said, well, in all of it. And it's sort of everything that you know about, about the science of booze. And I realized when I was trying to come up with a proposal for it and figure out what that book would actually say, that I had been collecting string on this subject for years, but I had a, a cabinet full of folders that were all um, full of relevant journal articles and magazine articles and interviews that I'd done, um, that I was, that I'd been chasing this because I like booze and I have some pleasant um, personal associations with it and I, uh, yeah. and I wanted to understand it better. And this book didn't exist when I tried to understand it better. I wanted this book to be out in the world. I wished it was there. I would have bought it if I hadn't. Um, had to write it myself. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a great compilation of uh, a lot of like the, yeah the science and the the facts behind you know they're you know in reading your book you know you like most books of this style you know like you're you're uh, referencing some like the sake book and you know whiskey books and things like that and uh, I mean there hasn't been one yet that just puts it all into one book altogether yeah you know? yeah and i i think in the in the in the wine universe there's there there is a certain flavor if you will of connoisseurship of wine that does really try to understand some of the science uh, you think about the, the minerals involved in terroir and the climate aspects involved in um in whether your grapes are going to ripen the way they're supposed to and what strain of grape you're using um but but uh but all of it uh, but 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 it still is t- tends to be um, in the context of uh, that that kind of wine tasting mode of like what what flavors and uh, what aromas you manifest at the end. And in terms of the, the of distilling, there was very little on on science written for a general audience. There was a there's an academic world that studies it. It's a small academic world. Um, but that was actually good for me because that to be able to say, listen, there's 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 plenty of academic and, in, and industry research, but there's very little general audience written about it. That's great because that means that it's open, open field for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I you know it's it's kind of uh, well just on the on the on the subject of just even fermentation and brewing. I mean that world like for the for the consumer like for the home use. You know, it's really blown. There's a 
here's a brew shop right around the corner from my house. You know, it's like, yeah, I, me too. Yeah. So it's like, how could you not want to, you know, experiment with brewing your own beer? But now, you know, there's, you know, it's, you know, let's hope you're using like an induction burner for like these small, like pot stills that you can use at home and not open flame. Cause that would be, well, we've seen how potentially, that happened. Potentially, potentially bad. That's, yeah. that's true. Yeah, it is true. And, 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 and in, and the, the, craft brewing world, but really the home brewing world, of course, is, is super nerdy. Uh, I mean, you know, that, that is the thing that I, I dare you to go to a university science lab and find fewer than two of the postdocs who work there who are um, home brewers. You know, that, that's just, there's a lot of overlap between the brewing world and the nerd world. And that, that actually, I hoped to turn that into a, a feature instead of a bug, as they say with the book, because my experience of people who make um, beer or wine or spirits so far is that many of them really understand the craft of what they're doing, but still might not know what the, what the science is behind it. And in fact, in some cases, the science isn't well known or well understood. There are a lot of, it doesn't take very long with the people who study smell and taste, let's say, or the effects of alcohol on the body before they'll admit after not so many questions that, that they don't know the answers to some things that you and I might think were actually pretty basic. Um, or you're like, how do you not know this yet? People have been drinking for 10,000 years. Why do we not understand this? Because the research is ongoing, which is exciting. That's, that actually makes it cool. That's, that's, that's when you know you're doing fun science, when people say, I don't know. Well, yeah, and well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I really like about this, too, is like going in, uh, expanding on the, like actually the first part of the book, uh, the yeast section is, to me, one of the more exciting ones because like I know about aging. I know about distillation. Like you said, you know, some of the stuff is stuff that I, you and I would know about, but, you know, I, I knew... <laughs> I knew that the yeast was some mystical uh, magic thing that just happens, right? No, it's not really. Yeah. But uh, you're talking well, about the uh, national collection of uh, yeast cultures in, in England and how they have like what, 4,000 different strains of yeast. And like, yeah, it's, it's really just interesting how we didn't really know what it was until about a century ago or so. Yeah, that's the, that amazed me. The idea that here was this, this process, this natural process that human beings have domesticated, have tamed and made our own, and we've been doing it for at least 10,000 years. That's the oldest archaeological evidence, and it may go back even farther. But nobody knew what actually made fermentation work until a, 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 young, uh, a young scientist trying to make his bones in the world of, of chemistry um, named Louis Pasteur. Before he was famous, Pasteur did work on wine and beer and, and was one of, the, one of the first people to finally say, you know what, you guys, I think it's the yeast. And this was the late 1800s. It's not so long ago. Um, even the, the, the famous German beer purity law, which I'm going to mangle the pronunciation of, I apologize, the Reheinsgebot, I, I'm, I'm pronouncing that wrong, I know, but it's the, the, it the close enough to law me. <laughs> yeah, from, from uh, it's 1600s, I think, and it's when a bunch of, uh, like a, a German government body said, listen, if you're going to make beer, it has to contain uh, barley, hops, and water, and that's it. Mm-hmm. It's the world's first food purity law, and if you'll notice, there's an ingredient missing because yeah. they don't mention yeast. They didn't know what it was, and it was the discovery of yeast as the agent of fermentation, or at least the argument over whether or not yeast were the agent of fermentation, that gave rise to biochemistry. That's why we have the field of biochemistry, was people trying to figure out how it was possible that living things could do what looked like inorganic chemical transformations. And so that's really exciting. You know, that's the beginning of... That's the beginning of, in many ways, modern genetics. The yeah. fact that we can try to understand yeast as a model organism that does all kinds of cool stuff, and that we can understand that, um, that DNA makes RNA, makes proteins, and the proteins are the active agents of chemistry in the body, comes from a trying to understand how you make beer. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, well, even go back to that, you know, like we were talking about it before. Uh, well, it says it in your book, and I think it's it's one of my one of my favorite lines is about how uh, uh, how we were domesticating yeast, but it ended up domesticating us to like basically yeah. basically to uh, cultivate a world to where it really can thrive and live and and be in of itself. You know, I think that's is a really interesting way to put that too. You know, I, it, that's right. Yeah. Um, the, th- the thing I think that's important about fermentation in the context of the science is that it connects us to the natural world. This is a natural process. Fermentation happens without anybody there to drink it. People don't have to be around for yeast to ferment. But since we are, we, we took it over. We took that process over and transformed it into something that we wanted to use. And in the process, the yeast transformed us into things that would give them the sugar that they like to eat. It connects us to the natural world in a very important way. Absolutely. I mean, even going to the Farpers Market, you know, and seeing that... Uh, um, the different kinds of fruits and vegetation, things that we grow now that were actually grown responsibly. I, I feel like that's also kind of a byproduct of us, like cultivating yeast and having it cultivate us, basically, or you know, domesticating us in a way to where, like you said, yeah, it made us more responsible for the way that we're connecting with nature and helping things to grow in a proper way. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and then you know, then we drink it <laughs> you know because that's fun too. And as um, a bonus yes. yeah as a bonus we're we're helping everyone help each other i think that's very nice <laughs> um let's take a quick break and when we get back let's continue talking about the book proof with adam rogers back in just a moment Michter's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Michter's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Michter's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small, from careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels to lower barrel entry proof before heat-cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Michter's master distiller says it's just right. Michter's cost be damned, taste is everything attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food & Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. For more information, visit michters.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. And we are back. You're listening to The Speakeasy. And in the stu- or on the phone today, we have Adam Rogers, uh, the author of Proof, um, The Science of Booze. We've just been talking a little bit before the break. We were talking about uh, yeast and fermentation. I'm, I, gotta be, I have to be honest with you, Adam. I've been kind of traveling and working a lot. I'm only about halfway through the book so far. I just started into the body and brain uh, section. And just about to get really good. I know. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, and then eventually, you know, the, the last part of the book, uh, well, before the conclusion, is the, uh, the hangover section, which I definitely need to read about maybe today. <laughs> maybe <laughs> oh, I can, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> no, it's okay. It was a good, it was a good time. Um, but yeah, um, so I guess we should, we should talk about, okay, the next section after the yeast section is the, uh, uh, the sugar section, then there's uh, taste and smell. You know, when I first 
started getting into uh, bartending uh, in a professional level, I started realizing how many different sweeteners and sugars are out there to create the balance of like when you're making a sour or an old fashioned and you can like substitute, you know, uh, maple for, you know, Demerara or Turbinado or Kuramitsu or something like that, you know, like there's, and that's just, that's not even talking honey or agave, you know, it's, uh, right. They're, and the way that those break down when they're fermenting is pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, like you, uh, you go into uh, a little discussion about how like, well, first of all, you've got, you know, agave, uh, and if you ferment that, you've got poke, and then if you distill that, you've got tequila. I mean, there's so many levels for each one style of, of sweetener and, and form, yeah. form of sugar. I was trying to get across this, um, this idea that I, 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 I'm not sure how deep an insight this is, but I, but I was aware of, from having read a lot of booze books that they tended to break the subject out into category of, of spirit or category of beer or wine. So you would have books that would go like, you'd go in order, and it was a potential structure for, for my book, too. You'd say, well, we're going to talk about beer, then we're going to talk about wine, then we'll talk about rum, we'll talk about tequila, and we'll talk about sake, you know, broken out in, um, and those would be the chapters. You know. And and I, I wanted to not do that because I, uh, um, I wanted to be able to explain that the process for making all of these things was largely the same, and the difference was to use a technical term, the substrate. What sugar do you start with? What source? What's the ingredient that you begin with? Because I, I realized that I could get a, a kind of amazing wide-eyed response from somebody just telling them that whiskey was distilled beer. Yeah. Um, and that, that that will amaze people um, who aren't, you know, who sort of aren't nerds about this stuff. And then, you, then to be able to say, um, well, brandy is distilled wine. And, and uh, brandy wine. shochu is Right, exactly. And, you know, shochu is distilled sake, which is made from rice, but you still have to use the sugar in whatever the ingredients are to feed to the yeast, and different kinds of sugars and different conditions and other side ingredients will result in different flavors. Then it becomes a way to talk about the subject as a whole instead of breaking down category by category. And it is really amazing when you consider that there are, when, when, you and I out in the world talk about sugar. The, the default image in people's heads, I think, is, is like table sugar, basically. And that's only one kind. There are other kinds of sugars, and they have different kinds of sweets. Our sense of taste responds to them differently. And if you feed them to yeast, they make different things out of them besides the, the alcohol and the carbon dioxide that are the, the main products of fermentation. And, and, and you, can learn to, you can learn to play that like an instrument. If you're the kind of person who makes this stuff, that you can learn... To um, to make booze out of almost anything, they do that. They do it all over the world with some of the weirdest ingredients you can think of, all trying to get to the same place. Yeah, I think. I mean, like going back to what you're saying about distilled. Uh, well, you know, what we were talking about in the first half of the show about like homebrewers uh, and be like kind of nerding out on that. I mean, you think about turning beer into whiskey, and you look at like Strainahan's Colorado whiskey. You know, it's they they started out taking Flying Dog Brewery's beer. Pumping it over into a still and distilling it—that's yep. What's what? And you know they have their own category of whiskey. And it's Colorado. That's right. Whiskey. And Charbet does it with um, Razor Five IPA as well mm-hmm. here in California. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah. I, I will I will say too, they're not they're usually not my favorite whiskeys because the hop comes through, um, and the hops are something I don't actually get into in the book that much. Which is too bad. I just didn't sort of didn't have space. It's a whole other interesting question. Yeah. It's a main difference between the kind of the kind of beer in quotes that you would use to distill to make whiskey and the kind of beer that. You want to drink out of a, a bottle on a nice day. Yeah, I mean, 
I'm, I'm, I have to agree with you. I'm not really a big hop fan, but I just, like that's just me. I don't know. I like I like a good pilsner, but not nothing, nothing too like IPA ish. Um, but uh, I have that I have that same I have that same uh, flavor profile. Yeah, I these California the the aggressive California IPAs are not in my wheelhouse. I know you're screwed out there. <laughs> it's true. It is true. I end up drinking a lot of German beer, actually. Yeah, I, I do too. Yeah, I mean, but like uh, I guess uh, getting a little off there. I mean, like thinking about the uh, the uh, the way that that press. It's like when you start breaking it down, like in the base form, like you do in this book. Uh, of what it is that makes these things, and then I mean, we're not we haven't even started talking about like aging yet. You know, no. different aging process is going to make it a different spirit, essentially, and like or different kind of wine, even. It really does, and the, and and so one of the things that I've gotten more and more interested in, um, really, in the course of working on the book and since the book has come out, is trying to find ways to to break out the different contributors that those that the different elements of the process add. To add different flavors. So, as an example, at Tales of the Cocktail this year, I moderated a, um, a panel, and the point of the panel was to try to isolate those flavors. So, we did a, a one of the experiments. Experiment is quite right, but one of the things that we did was I went to the folks at White Labs in San Diego who make a lot of yeast, different strains of yeast for craft brewing and home brewing. It's not a little bit of distilling, and so they have a they have a tasting room where they make two dozen different kinds of beer holding every condition and ingredient constant except for the yeast. So you'd never make beer that way. You know, you, you change the fermentation temperature and the time and the, and the grain bill and all that stuff. But they don't do that. They keep everything constant so that you can taste in their beer the differences that the yeast will contribute. I asked them, and they agreed, to take four of their most different beers, basically, and send them to Lance Winters at St. George Spirits in Alameda, across the bay from where I am right now, um, and, let, and let Lance... Winners, the, the the lead distiller, run each of them through his um, his lab still. So he's got a little thirty liter still. So I wanted to see if you distilled those, tasting the white dog, could you taste differences? Because he was going to distill them all in the same way. And in fact, you really could. Each of them tasted very different, and one of them actually tasted pretty good. Um, and those are all just what the yeast does, as distinct from every other ingredient. And then the other things we were tasting at that panel, we tasted, for example. A, um, rum that had been aged three different ways, um, not in wood, just in, in glass and in steel for different amounts of time and mixed in different ways. And they all tasted very different. And we tasted some of the experimental bourbons coming out of um, Buffalo Trace. You know, they're doing a lot of uh, interesting experiments with their aging process. So just tasting the same bourbon that had spent time in different kinds of wood. And it tasted very different. So you, you begin to get a sense of when you, um, when you have the experience of sitting down at a nice bar and having somebody put something really complex in front of you, some really complicated aged rum agricole, let's say, or a, or a, a, a glass of 25-year-old single malt, you know, whatever, Macallan 25 or something, something that really has a lot going on in terms of aroma and flavor and mouthfeel and something really complicated that you begin to... Um, with the experience of tasting these kinds of things, you begin to unpack what what part of the process is contributing which flavor, and um, and that's something that that even the makers would like to understand better. Because you know, just for economic reasons, they'd like to age things for less amount of time. They'd like to sure. maybe not have it have a cheaper wood or have cheaper grain if they can do it, or different yeast that they can like. How can they get some efficiencies into their process? Because they want to fundamentally they want to make more money. And they want to make something taste better, whichever. Um, or even just and that's fi- really fun. Yeah, or, I mean, like even just finding that sweet spot of the uh, the Rick House. I mean that that's a huge deal too. I mean, two different 
barrels in uh you know they could be distilled they could be from the same distillation run and i mean even if they're in two barrels next to each other you know yeah. not, not the wood's not always consistent you know the the right. uh, temperature in the warehouse is going to be different in different places but i think and that's I, and, I'll, and i'll tell you like in the in the wine, in the beer and distilling world um the people who are who study it can tend to be um, critical for reasons that I think make a lot of sense of the of the winemaking world because they'll say, this, "I'm being really I'm being intentionally offensive about this, so I apologize <laughs> to the wine folks." But they'll say, "Like, well, how do you guys even call yourselves makers? Because you can't do it the same way every time. Come, you you don't even know why it's going to turn out different from year to year." And they they make a virtue out of that by having a vintage mm-hmm. year or something. But 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 in, but the the argument is to say. Look, you know, say what you will about the flavor profile of Budweiser, but at least it's Budweiser every time. And that's every bit as hard, and yet that's what they do. Or Jack Daniels is that every time. But, of course, that's actually kind of a specious argument because of what you were just saying. The fact is that the reason that a distillery like Jim Beam can have so many different labels, eight or nine or however many things they make or, you know, whatever that is, or you know, Buffalo Trace can make a dozen different things with different labels and different design at different ages is that age is a time and wood and the maturation process in those barrels makes for a different barrel every time. And they just make a virtue out of that by calling it something different. Um, yeah. But, I mean, it, uh, but they usually but have a, that process is complicated. Yeah. I mean, like there's usually, you know, their tasting panel and they're like, Oh, well, this one actually fits up to, uh, you know, this one's like Elmer T. Lee, you know, <laughs> and, uh, right. Instead of the Eagle Rare tenure, so I get that. I get that. Um, but isn't that also going back to like the fundamentals of like of like the history of of booze and it, you know and the science of booze that it is wild. I mean, we're talking about yeast. It came from yeah. being wild. It came be- from being inconsistent. Life is inconsistent, and I think that's what makes it so interesting. You know. So, I think that's absolutely right, and it's true of wood because you get that's a natural product too. And in fact, one of the most exciting fields of research now, in terms of booze, is trying to understand what other micro, what effect other microbes have on this process. So that's beginning to be understood in terms of why you would um, season a barrel outside, season the wood for a barrel outside for three years before you make it into a barrel versus mm-hmm. kiln drying it, as a lot of American whiskey makers do, because. You're not just getting it's sitting outside in the rain and in the temperature changes, for sure, but it's also being exposed to the various bacteria and fungi that break down wood in nature. So you're getting a different chemical in that you're getting different chemicals in that wood when you make it into a barrel. The rum makers have known this for a long time, um, although the, the research is not great because a lot of this is artisanal level. But in some cases, they'll take what what a whiskey maker would call sour mash. They'll take the mash that's already been used in the still, and they'll take it out of the still and, like, bury it in a hole in the ground called a dunder pit to try to get the local microbial flora and fauna to grow in it, make all kinds of weird, interesting esters, do other chemical reactions in there, and then they'll put that back into the still in the next batch. So it sterilizes because the heat is so high. There's nothing gross or, or pathogenic in there, but you get the interesting chemicals that those bacteria and other fungi presumably are kicking out into the stuff. So there, 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 are, there are still mysteries here about why these drinks taste the way they do. And they're scientific mysteries. It's not, there's nothing, it's not magic here. This is just uh, uh, experiments we haven't done yet. I would like to think it's magic. I'm just going to, I'm going to go with magic. <laughs> <laughs> I, this is, there's a, there's a, a piece of this in the in the end of the book where I say there's an there's an old 
um, Arthur C. Clarke quote where he says, um, any, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And so I would, I would, I would paraphrase that and say uh, that um, it, it, it looks like magic, but it's technology, and sometimes we just don't understand it, but we do this. You know, we human beings make this stuff, and that's pretty amazing that we can make something that didn't exist before we got here. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Adam, it's, we're at the end of the show, and uh, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time out of your day. I know the office is crazy right now. Um, really enjoying the book. I can't wait to wrap it up and, uh, and tell everyone else. Uh, well, I'm doing that right now, telling everyone else to buy it. <laughs> so well, you can you get much. it. Uh, what, what's your preferred method of, uh, of procuring this book? Amazon. Oh, you know what? I, I I leave that I leave that to the conscience of the procurer, but it is certainly available at bookstores and it's on electronically Amazon Powell's. The, depending on how you feel about Amazon, there are other electronic places to get it. I know I understand, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but it is but but they have it there and it is easy and and also the the bookstores it, it's it's reasonably um, well distributed to bookstores around you. So if you've got a bookstore and you want to go in and see it in real life, they they have it. Awesome! It's a great book. It's a fun read. It's chock full of information and uh i can't wait to get into it some more so uh Adam, next time you're in town uh let me know and uh, maybe we can pick up where we left off i would love it that'd be great awesome well i'll see you soon and thanks for being on the show today my pleasure that's it for the speakeasy this week tune in to heritage radio network for many many more shows full of awesome information and great guests and we'll see you next week cheers it's gonna get you listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org heritage radio network is a 501c3 non-profit to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening <laughs>